This is podcast number 87, entitled Betty Davis Eyes. And I want to underline again the uh, fact that there is a uh, Gmail account, that is to say uh, um, a letterbox where you can send thoughts or questions or responses to any of these casts, and that is pzspodcast at gmail.com. And pzspodcast is spelled P-Z-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. No apostrophe. People are writing, and I'd love to hear what you have to say and respond, and it's a very good way to be able to interact with uh, with the kind of material I'm attempting to present. Now, this is called Betty Davis Eyes because it's going to go a little bit more deeply, I hope, into something that I've referred to once before in a podcast and has puzzled me and interested me for many years in the paintings, that is to say, the painted portraits of 17th century uh, Calvinist uh, leaders and reformers. Now, for heaven's sake, you may say, I mean, what a... um, what a specific, at very best, and uh, um, overwhelmingly insignificant uh, issue to look at. But what is continuing to strike me is the nature of uh, defeat in adult life and how defeat can be uh, translated into some kind of meaningful activity or some kind of actual um, crucible of hope and new birth and new delight in living, as opposed to simply the désespoir of the defeated life, which is characteristic of adult people. And one of the things that has uh, struck me over the years, and it struck me with a renewed impact in light of a movie that has been uh, released recently, and then there are implications for what the prayer book calls the newness of life, and this is the newness of our lives, the newness possibly of your life and my life. And it's a subject of uh, actual, um, urgent, and necessary importance to every human being, and certainly to anyone who's uh, finally come to important engagement with the uh, dead end, that uh, adult, futile, spin your wheels, repetition compulsion activity, which results in sort of ashes and diamonds, but far more characteristically ashes in the the long view of what one has done uh, in the kind of false notion of the ego that afflicts us all. Specifically now, I'm talking about Renaissance French portraiture, specifically the portraits of the poet Clément Marot, the public figures Agrippa Domini and Henri de Rouen, the theologian Théodore Vez, and the um, two uh, further important Huguenot figures, Duplessis Mornay and de Coligny. And then I may make a slight departure into the early Jesuits. What you see in these portraits, and you can Google them all on Google Images, you can find them all, they're all in uh, the... um, mid-16th century, late 16th century. I think in the case of Duplessis-Mornay, it may be just a little bit after the Edict of Nantes. But the um, the picture that you see in these reformed, that is to say, Protestant French figures who were of sufficient renown to have uh, someone paint their picture or to have someone else pay for them to have their picture painted. What you see in all these men's eyes 
is a kind of very profound loss. There is an extremely interesting picture of loss. Now, let me give you um, the examples here. So when you look at these pictures, you'll see Clément Marot was a um, vital, delightful, classically interested and um, extremely well-educated noble-born poet in the French court who was converted during a time of tremendous lacking of confidence and uh, always in these characters, their crisis is exacerbated by illness or imprisonment. And uh, Clément Moreau's picture shows a man whose eyes reveal a very deep kind of fatalistic interest. Now, we can associate it all we want with Calvinism, and in a way, there must be a connection, because I see it the same thing in the portrait of the famous English Anglican Calvinists uh, like uh, John Whitgift or... um, or, Archbishop of Canterbury, Abbott, you see the same eyes. There's a kind of deep fatigue, a kind of deep um, depth of um, a kind of failure coupled with an acquiescence and acceptance. And I'm not putting something on because you you are making this up. In my experience, I've studied these portraits forever, and you need to go and look at them. Look at Clément Marot's portrait. Look at the portrait of Agrippa d'Aubigny. We get the name Dabney. Anybody connected with the name Dabney is a, some kind of a descendant of the d'Aubigny family, and that in itself is a hugely important story in French history. But Agrippa himself happened to be present at age seven, at the uh, conspiracy of Amboise that was uh, caught or uh, betrayed, and in the immediate, like the hourly aftermath, with not even the semblance of a of a um, of a trial, the Protestant conspirators who were all involved in trying to set up a Protestant uh, kind of government under the reign of Francois Premier, uh, he was seven years old, a group of Dominique, and he saw about twenty people that were known to his father. Intimate friends in some cases and all acquaintances hanged from the battlements of the chateau or castle of Amboise. I've been right there and I've seen it. The guides always present it to you and show it to you. And of course today in France and for many years afterwards, the Huguenots are idealized. As I've said before, Hugo shows in the 93, uh, that wonderful novel of the French Revolution that uh, during the Estates General, the Jacobin uh, leaders were just uh, lining up to announce their um, direct ancestry with these Huguenot figures who now, having all been killed or persecuted or exiled during their lifetimes, were now heroes of liberation. Agrippa d'Aubigny's eyes in his uh, portrait show um, a certain amount of humor and a certain kind of uh, a detachment, and yet again, these eyes of failure. What accounted for d'Aubigny's uh, working in the lost cause? By the way, you'll see the same in the later um, photographs of, uh, of uh, Robert E. Lee and the sum of the uh, defeated uh, Confederate generals. You see exactly the same look in the portrait of Gaspard de Coligny, the Admiral of France, who was murdered August 24th, 1872, one of the first victims of the St. Bartholomew massacre. You see the same look of kind of defeat, and I'm here, but I'm not here. I've seen something else, and I've seen my life, and it's very tragic. And de Coligny was... uh, 
was converted to Protestantism during his two-year imprisonment after his uh, surrender at the Siege of San Quentin. <laughs> Good name for Americans. Um, you'll see it in the pictures of one of the last of the Protestant warriors who ended up fighting in connection with the sort of later wars, the um, actually the, the uh, mid-17th century, and uh, Henri de Rouen, and you'll see exactly the same look of defeat. And uh, biographers of Rouen often refer to the fact that they see it as depression. He would have seen it as sort of an understanding of life that was uh, deeply transfigured by a kind of uh, disillusionment. I'm here, and I really have seen through it, and yet I've been given something to do. And you see it in Duplessis Mornay in his noble portrait. I've got all the attributions here, but I'm not going to give you a lot of... You can look all this up. Duplessis-Mornay... I think of Rebecca de Mornay, isn't that a uh, a Hollywood uh, actress and now director, a very fine person. Duplessis Mornay's look of fatigue, coupled with a little bit of residual useful élan and sort of hope. He, he has a little bit less of that look, but it's there as well. It's there in a most remarkable way in the portrait of Théodore de Bez, not my favorite a true five-point Calvinist, if there ever was one. Uh, Calvin's uh, uh, follower, and many people regard him as the real author of uh, of uh, heavy-duty, hardcore uh, Calvinism, not Calvin himself, who apparently was a little more balanced, so to speak, with Scripture, but Theodore de Bez was more systematic. Whether that's true or not, you look at his eyes. I've actually stood and faced his portrait, which is in the a Society for the History of French Protestantism in Paris. And when you see the portrait, the man just shoots out at you. He just rushes out at you with these deep Betty Davis eyes. You'll see a little bit of this in the pictures of the early Jesuits who had a bit of the same fatigue. And you'll see it acted out in the powerful movie, um, The Mission, in which Robert De Niro, playing a man who is truly defeated by himself, he is... Uh, finds an answer to his life's problems and then is able to jettison the tremendous uh, bagage uh, that has caught him up. And the baggage of life caught completely and totally uh, by the... uh, disenfranchisement of the ego's success. Most of these men, again, as I say, uh, had a conversion that was very real, a very deep um, uh, opportunity to look at life's fragility, vulnerability, and finally its uh, it's, it's tortured um, futility. And whether it was in prison, St. Ignatius, of course, on the Catholic side, uh, Society of Jesus, or whether it was through um, some form of disease and tremendous checking. You find the same, by the way, with Ulrich Zwingli, who's almost the case in point in the Protestant tradition of a man who, after his uh, brush with the plague, the true authentic plague, as we see it in the movies, Pied Piper of Hamelin, the Black Plague, uh, he uh, survived and uh, comes out of it a dead man who's now raised from the dead, and he cares for nothing, and he has a kind of invincible inner strength that is both uh, the ego's been defeated, so he has time for something else. Huxley talks about this very much in, uh, again, the great book, After Many a Summer dies the swan, in which he describes the when the ego has died, there's room for God. He says, when the ego has died, there's room for God. And whether we're talking about some kind of 
Eastern mystical experience, or whether we're talking about these men all the way over to England and Whitgift and Abbott. And there are a few others in the English tradition, but not very many. And uh, you don't find as many in the Lutheran tradition, which is definitely a little bit more fun. Uh, but these men have a kind of defeatedness which coalesces with the theology of, of acquiescence, which is uh, very deep. I associate a little bit with Arthur Winner at the end of um, of uh, his wonderful um, d- 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 destructive hour at the end of By Love Possessed, where he finally agrees to live, but live under the complete shadow of internal and external defeat. No longer is it an attempt to kind of be uh, Epicurean and Lucretian and Democritan, but it's more, uh, it truly is hope against hope. Now, this um, came across very thoroughly in uh, watching three times of late a movie that the Criterion Collection has released uh, from 1961 in a very uh, beautiful new print and edition, and it's called Léon Morin Priest. And it uh, is in the Criterion Collection and recently released and stars uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo in a characteristically unlight role, uh, but also an unsexy role, except if you see him as sexy, which the characters do, but he never falls out of the correctness and wonderfulness of his role. And Emmanuel Riva, who was the star of Hiroshima Mon Amour, and you'll recognize her. She's brilliant. And uh, in Léon Morin Paretra, or Priest, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, who I'm told was a Jewish atheist. Um, I just have to take other people's words for it, but the movie I know well. And uh, the movie depicts a young and utterly committed man with these kinds of eyes with a little bit more humor, a Catholic priest in a small French town during the occupation by the German army and under the Vichy regime. And because all the men in the town have either left for military reasons or have been killed, or a great many of them have fled to the forest. The town is a center of resistance activities. They are are maquis in the forest. Uh, And uh, the women are left all alone, very vulnerable, and they're all young in the movie. And they find the only uh, person who has anything to offer them of hope in this time without any men, without husbands, without young uh, protectors, and uh, in a time where they have no one really to protect them, and there's... uh, except their measly little sort of jobs, in a, you know, which are we would call them white collar. It's a very dislocated time, and there's also very little food and no heat and a lot of German soldiers around. The um, priest, uh, whose name is Leon Morin, Leon Morin, it becomes a focus because he's the real deal. He becomes a focus for these women's uh, needs to talk, and he sees one after another after another. There are four principal female um, characters who consult him, of whom one is the heroine of the uh, of the uh, movie, together with the priest, and all of them have various. Um you might call it uh, psychosexual issues of one sort or another. And uh, he entirely uh, sees his entire life as basically sitting in the confessional two hours a day and then at nighttime talking to these young women and obviously some men, but it's all women we see, who come talk to him about their lives. And he never, ever for one single second um, does what we would today show a falls from grace and makes a pass at any of these beautiful, young, available women. He is utterly and completely what used to be called in the circles I was in, a sold-out Christian person who is completely and totally safe because whatever needs his ego has had for 
stroking affirmation and all the psychological reference points that cause clergy and everyone in the world in one way or another to get hooked and in many cases to fall from their vows. In this case, um, his vow of uh, celibate priestly service, he never falls. Uh, we learn that he's a, what we today would call a completely self-realized individual. And uh, Leo Morin, played fortunately by a very young and sexy French actor, uh, Jean-Paul Valmondo, who was in movies like The Man from Rio, which is sort of the early Indiana Jones uh, film, and very good with Francois Dorliac, and he's most famously in the movie Breathless, Obuda Souffle, and uh, a number of other films. This remarkable actor, who was a sex symbol, if you want to use the word, but he was in European drama, and he became very, very famous at that period. He plays a priest who is the real deal, and he never falls from grace. And as a result, because he is utterly unaffected by people coming on to him or un- unintentionally coming on to him, and in some cases intentionally, because he is utterly unaffected by any kind of need to have his ego be stroked in any way, shape, or form, he is completely able to be even-handed and 1,000% objective in dealing with beautiful young women, older beautiful young women, married young women, single young women, and in the most touching case, in the sort of 10, 11-year-old 11, 11 young daughter of Emmanuel Riva Barney, as her name is, the little beautiful child, France, France. And he is, uh, there's a scene in which he plays around with her before putting in her bed and reading her uh, a beautiful little book called First Steps to Jesus and uh, says a prayer for her that's very profound and in the presence of her mother and uh, it, today all sorts of um, projections and uh, preconceptions would come into our viewing you know is he really um, a you know a pedophile is he um, is he going to try to uh, put the moves on the mother uh, the whole thing is laden today with those and yet there's none of it the movie was made with that being absolutely and totally abjured from the entire situation. He is clean and clear and transparent and utterly able, therefore, to be a point of completely impersonal, but we might say divinely loving compassion, love, and, and, and solid ground, an anchor of the soul to all these people in this village. And uh, that is what is so powerful, both when the Germans, who are portrayed really quite um, humanely, whether it's the uh, the husbands living out in the woods, whether it is the his dealings with women who are consorting with Germans, and whether it's uh, these uh, American soldiers who then occupy the town and are seen actually as really very hot, uh, howling wolves who almost actually force the hero, almost rape her uh, in the presence of the daughter. It's a terrible scene, very uh, unpleasant for an American because the uh, filmmaker is trying to show that even-handedly that a German in the prison of, in the, in the service of the Nazi war machine, one particular German, can be sweet and good and kind and he's fated to die. Um, he goes to the Russian front and another American who represents liberation is a cad and a user and a dreadful character. And um, so you have an even-handed picture in the Italian soldiers. But the main point here is that this man, with those Betty Davis eyes of Debez, Durand, Duplessis, Mornay, de 
Coligny, Clément Marot, and Agrippa d'Aubigné, and others. He has these eyes of the self-realized person who's realized that life itself, the ego is defeated. You see, the great thing here that we see is that the ego needs to be defeated. And what has to happen in human experience, and I believe this is a general principle, and I say it for myself, from myself, but to you also, I believe that it is a fundamental core principle of living, that the ego must undergo the antithesis of failure and defeat. And that is what I see in the eyes of these astonishing um, figures of the French Revolution. By the way, I do not see it for the most part in the portraits which are done, um, which are Gleichzeitig. They are, they are simultaneous historically with portraits of the uh, members of the Catholic League. The Duc de Guise had his portrait done. Remember, the, the highly militant Catholic organization which brought uh, France and the French army to complete uh, um, triumph uh, over the uh, Protestant armies, and the Protestants lost decisively, although their man, Henry de Navarre, who became Henry IV, uh, saw the brilliance of conceding and became a Roman Catholic, and at that point allowed for the possibility of toleration. But the hardcore uh, Catholics in this case, and there were hardcore people on both sides, I know that, and I, not, neither would, would I argue for that, but they ended up, in fact, being very brutal to the Protestant defeated adversaries. And you see, look at paintings of, uh, of the Duc de Guise and the de Guise family, the Cardinal de Lorraine, uh, and a number of the strong uh, Henry III, uh, and of course the extraordinarily um, cold paintings of uh, Catherine de' Medici. Look at Charles IX. Look at the paintings of those people, and you won't see the same defeat. You'll see a kind of um, kind of uh, lots going on. You'll, you'll see the pictures of a Machiavellian. A lot's turning behind the surface. The eyes reveal a wily, foxy you would almost say, you know, the de Richelieu, you know, are you the Cardinal de Richelieu, the hammer of the Protestants and the uh, absolute imperator of uh, of French autocracy under the Sun King. We I'm referring here to the Monty Python sketch about Cardinal de Richelieu. Are you the man who murdered da, 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 and created mayhem with your Byzantine plots to undo the da 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 da. And, of course, the French are uh, being lampooned, by, as they did, as you remember much more in the in the famous movie, The Holy Grail. But um, we uh, t- take a look at those portraits, too, and you won't find quite that same John Whitgift uh, reform defeat. Now, I'm not reformed myself, but I do know about the defeat. And the defeat I saw so powerfully in the freedom of the priest Léon Morin in Jean-Pierre Melville's 1961 film, so recently released by the Criterion Collection, and therefore a little bit hot. You know, this is not all 16th century. This is hot. Um, And by the way, uh, the uh, Catholic Church's... uh, which people don't want to hear, but the way that so many Catholic priests actually helped uh, Jews and fought against the deportation and uh, did everything in their power, as many Lutheran clergy did in Germany, something also seldom looked at. 
many Catholic priests uh, actually, like this Leo Morin, did a great deal for their fellow citizens uh, who were not Christians and not Aryans, and it's, uh, that also happens in the movie. But Jean-Pierre Melville refuses to sort of make hay out of it. He just shows it as a statement because um, the Jean-Paul Balmondo priest is as even-handed to an 11-year-old prepubescent girl as to her uh, sort of chest-heaving mother who wants him so badly in the bed in the back uh, uh, son lit lit son lit in the back bedroom as uh, he is to the uh, members of his uh, parish geographically speaking who are uh, of the Jewish faith as to the rich and as to the poor his uh, Christian even-handedness is absolutely remarkable because he's not really in it for any kind of egotistical affirmation or kudos and so this defeat wherever you see it uh, is something that I believe is a picture of what has to happen now let me say something to conclude um what uh, the, 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 the I see this more clearly than ever that adulthood is really a, a terrible <clears throat> delusion. Um, we used to have this expression that when a child reaches the age of sort of uh, a, when a girl reaches the age of sort of ages about twelve, thirteen, a young boy usually it was around fourteen. Uh, about a year later, depending, but very often uh, the girl went under the ether. That was the expression. Someone said, but "My daughter's under the ether." That is to say, she's no longer a child. She's in that adolescent teenage state, and you know, moodiness, and won't talk to you in silence, and retreating into herself, and only talking to her friends, and all the usual things that people say, which are actually true if. You've been a parent of such persons, and then the boy does the same. Oh, he's under the ether now, and he'll come out of the ether maybe around age 19, 21, 22, sometimes never, but most of the, it's like time travel, you know, curse of the fly. Will they make it between the sending, uh, the sending environment, you know, uh, and the glass case on the other side? Well, some of them don't, most of them do, and then they, they come into something like adulthood. But, you know, who wants it? Who wants adulthood? I mean, give me for crying out loud. Uh, we were in this uh, place of the child, of spontaneity, uh, love, interest, hope, and immediate gravitation. Allah super ate the film to that which is true about everything. Remember, Kerouac says again and again and again, as does Christopher Hitchens in a recent quote someone sent me that is so good. I think Lloyd Fonville sent it to me. Always stay in touch with your child. Viva l'enfant. Live. May the child live. May always the child live within you. That is the key to uh, enjoying life and having any kind of freedom from the tremendous stresses of the human prediction which uh, of life as an adult, which create weight gain. And um, stress is really being an adult, and being an adult is for the birds. Let me say why being an adult is for the birds. Don't you, you, you can say, oh, you know, you have to. I mean, after all, how is the world going to live, and will the garbage get cre- collected, and what about this, and what about defense? that, and what about, you know, this, that, and the other thing, and I will say, well, I've tried it, <laughs> and uh, the universal statement, and I'm not alone here, is that it's for the birds, because what it, adult life becomes this enormous neurotic kind of cloud that descends upon you of of uh, of activity that is basically based upon duty and some kind of idea when it's all a process and no content no joy and all guilt and everyone's just running around with a sense of accountability and guilt and stress and life for most people is not is not good i mean this is why holidays are so hugely coveted and more if it were up to most people they just jam as many holidays as possible because the average person does doesn't really like their life. At least that's my view. There are some who do. Those are usually people who are in touch with a child enough to actually do something that their child likes as well as, and that it happens to also 
have some payoff for an adult. You know, they, they actually like to do that. They're actually interested in car engines. You know, they're actually interested in some particular aspect of production. Uh, it, they enjoy the, you know, the, the challenge of this, that, or the other thing. But for most of us, uh, life is, you know, everybody's just counting down to retirement. And of course, with women whose lives have traditionally been quite different, um, their uh, sense of being imprisoned by the common task never seemed to end. And uh, I won't comment on that. All I will say is that adulthood is for the birds. And when you are defeated, when your adult ego, this ridiculous creature of, uh, of, uh, who's drawn around by a false idea and basically preconceptions that have absolutely no relationship to reality, you see that it's all a, a joke. And that's why these young, these remarkable young men whose pictures I'm talking about, almost all of them had a crisis. It includes, by the way, Jesus of Nazareth and um, other figures of great religions, they almost all had a crisis in their youth that uh, defeated their egos. And in when, as Huxley had said, when the ego is defeated, there's room enough for God, for a silence, for the truth of life, for wisdom and inspiration and even revelation, call it what you will, to enter and boop, the birth of an artist like Thornton Wilder. Thornton Wilder wrote a short one, a three-minute play about this question. I think it's the first of his wonderful three-minute plays of which the climax, in my opinion, is the angel that troubled the water. But he talked about the birth of the artist. The artist comes to this point of tremendous emptiness. And the emptiness is uh, lucky you if you got checkmated as a 19-year-old. Lucky you. Because what happens to most people is they are checkmated, but later, and then they don't know what hit them. Some people are not checkmated till death. I was so struck when someone I loved suddenly found out that she had uh, like about three weeks to live. And and so she did. She died in three weeks. And uh, the shock of the thing, she just sort of went over, she went over the edge of defeat in about two days, but then she retreated into a little shell and she never talked to another person. She never talked to another person till the day she died. She was so surprised and shocked. Her ego was so unprepared for this medical uh, emergency and this dramatic news that she just pulled in and uh, and died very rapidly without any real peace with anybody or anything. Now, you don't want that. And uh, the adulthood has to result in failure. And the look in the eyes of Leon Morin, you, he tells his life story just a little bit to the Barney Emmanuel Riva character and doesn't tell it enough, but you know that he understands understood something very soon, this young man, that could make a 35-year-old person or 34-year-old priest as he is a man of such extraordinarily non-self-referentiality. He doesn't have to refer all his encounters with persons to his ego. And as a result, he is a truly free man. See the movie. Netflix has it, and we got it that way. But I, uh, we, we've seen it three times, and you know, we saw it three times in five days, and then and then we sent it back, and then uh, Mary turned to me and said, Paul, you know, we ought to, we ought to rent that again. So a month and a half later, we rented it again, saw it twice again, because the movie, that rare evocation of a realistic picture of human nature among the men and women depicted, a realistic picture of a man who's actually freed from his ego, which in this context results in also a highly affirmative and affirming picture of what a Christian minister, for example, could be. Well, I've said what I have to say, and when the ego is defeated, hopefully young, then we can rise to childhood. You see, you don't revert back, you revert forward. You rise to not to newness of life, but the newness of life, which is the little child. Jesus said this, he lifted the child up into his arms and said to his disciples, unless you become as a little child, 
you shall in no way inherit the kingdom of God. Become like a little child. Uh, develop the Betty Davis eyes. I can't do it for you, but I long for you to have a defeat or to have had a defeat and to be in contact with your defeat in a way which affirms and understands this is the greatest and best thing that can ever happen. Thank you so much to listening uh, for this and uh, survey the pictures on uh, Google Images and come back to me at pzspodcast at gmail.com. That's without an apostrophe. And I'll be... um, I'll be yearning for you. I don't have them yet, by the way. My eyes are a little bit too needy, uh, but uh, I certainly want them. And maybe one of these days, my passport picture might reveal the onset of Betty Davis' eyes. Thank you so much, and God bless.